The following audio is from First Baptist Pelham in Pelham, Alabama. More information about First Baptist Pelham is available at fbcpelham.org. Meditations of our heart be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. And all the people said, Amen. Amen. Thank you for letting me share this time with you this morning. And uh, your prayer time is one of the special times to me, and I know it is to you. Open your Bible with me this morning, if you will, to the Sixth chapter of the book of Isaiah. In just a moment, we'll look at the first part of this chapter. We'll stand together, but let me precede that by encouraging you, if you've not already made plans, to uh, join your fellow Christians here at Chaco Springs next week. Remember the revised schedule. Uh, the second service here will not start till 9:30, and you don't want to be early. You know that. But I hope you can make it there. Uh, while you're doing that. I will be preaching at a small church about half the size of the choir this morning, a little country church outside of Selma, Alabama in Pleasant Hill. The following Sunday, a dear friend of mine is going to be preaching for us. I'll be here. I encourage you to be here, but to be praying for Dr. Bob Pittman. I've known him for nearly 50 years. He is a Bible preacher that will bless your hearts. I promise you that. He's built a great church at Kirby Woods outside of Memphis. I was with him many years ago there in a revival. And I promise you that, uh, as you well know, Brother Mike would not have invited him had he not been a Bible preacher. And we look forward to sharing those services uh, two weeks from today through uh, Wednesday night. Before we read the first part of Isaiah 6, let me introduce it to you this way. Many times as you read in literature, the book of Isaiah is called a major prophet. That doesn't mean he's more important than the others. It just means, even though the book is longer, 66 chapters, but part of the reason it's called a major prophet is the book of Isaiah is quoted more often in the New Testament than any other book except the book of Psalms. Over and over and over, you find it quoted in the 27 books of the New Testament. In fact, Matthew alone has only 28 chapters, 26 times he quotes the book of Isaiah. So it is quoted oftentimes in the Word of God in the New Testament. So indeed, it is a major prophet. Let's stand together as we read the first verses of Isaiah chapter 6. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord's sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train, really his robe, filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphim, each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, Woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. 
for mine eyes have seen the king. Notice here, capital K, little k in verse 1, the earthly king. Capital K here, the king of kings and the Lord of hosts. He said, I've seen him. And then flew one of the seraphim having unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin purged, atoned for, forgiven. Also I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, Here am I, send me. And he said, Go, and tell this people. Thank you, and be seated. Of all the books of prophecy we have in the Old Testament, we have the most detailed account of a call of a prophet here in Isaiah chapter 6. No other prophecy tells us that much about their being called into the ministry that Isaiah does. In fact, he tells us the very year that he's being called. He said the year the king Uzziah died. We know from history that year is 742 B.C. For you history students, that's 11 years after the founding of the city of Rome. He dates it specifically. Now, what you want to remember is, here's a king, Uzziah. You probably have never heard of him. But he came to the throne when he was just a teenager, 16 years old. But he ruled for 52 years. You know how many presidents we've had in the last 52 years? Ask Paula. She'll tell you after church. (laughs) Seriously. You'd have to go all the way back to the year before John F. Kennedy was assassinated in 1962 to have all the presidents since then, and they'd had one. And Isaiah says, it was a major year, a tragedy, but in that year, I met God. Now, before we look at this passage closely, I want to ask you two questions. Number one, why have you come to First Baptist Pelham, Alabama on this Sunday morning? Why are you here? Well, there may be a multiplicity of reasons given. Some of you here have been recognized already. You're guests, and we're glad that you're here. We hope you'll fill out the little guest card and leave it here with us. Some of you may be out of curiosity. You heard Brother Mike had retired, and they'd gotten an old, 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 old preacher to come, and you're here to see whether you like him or not. Well, I thank you for coming. I don't know what you're going to think, but I'm glad you're here. Some of you may be here out of searching. You're going through a difficult time in your life. And somewhere along the way, people told you, when you've tried all else, try God. And you're here saying, Charles, I need help. I'm here asking God to help me. And on and on we could go, but when you take all of these reasons and bring them down to the very heart of why we're here, these secondary reasons fade away. Primarily, if I've come to this church on this day for the right reason, I have come to worship God. No other reason. Across the top of your bulletin there. It says celebration of W-O-R-S-H-I-P. What? Worship. Now, so we've come to worship God if we've come for the right reason. And I believe that most of us, hopefully all of us have. Now, let me ask you a second question more fundamental than that. If that's the reason we're here, what ought to happen? 
and your mind and your heart for you to leave this hour of worship in just a few moments. And you can say to anyone anywhere, I had a real worship experience in our church this morning. I had a real worship experience. What ought to happen for you to be able to say that this morning? Well, I think the best answer to that is here in Isaiah chapter 6, where he tells us the answer to our inquiry, why, what is worship? What is going to happen to my mind, my heart, my, 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 my whole being if I really worship God? And I think you'll find there are five key things that you can check on every time you worship. You don't have to come to church to worship. You may do it somewhere else, but wherever it is, these five ingredients inevitably must be present. First of all, there's what I would call confrontation, or you may prefer the word encounter. Listen to the way that Isaiah says it in verse 1. In the year the king died, listen to him, I saw what? The Lord. He said everybody else was talking about the death of the king, and we hadn't had that to happen in 52 years. That year, though, I saw the Lord. In other words, confrontation took place with Isaiah when he met God. Now, in this worship hour, in any worship time, there are means to an end. There are things that help us worship God. We've done them already this morning. We've had prayers that have been prayed. These people who just left the altar, and others who have led us in prayer here, our lay people and our staff. Prayers to God. You've had praising to God by the praise team, by the choir, by the instrumentalists. All of them have joined in praising God. You've sung songs of praise to God. I'm doing the best I can to preach from the Word of God, God's Word to us. So preaching about God. But hear me now. All of these are important. We do them all every Sunday. Praying, praising, preaching. But I hear carefully. These are means to an end. They're not the end in themselves. Can I put it plainly? The choir, the instrumentalist, the vocalist, the preacher. We're not here to put on a show where you can sit out and decide whether you like it or not. Now, we hope you do like it, and we hope you'll come back. I don't ever, people sometimes say to you, like people to like you. Sure, I like people to like me. Some people do, and some people don't. I believe they're going to heaven. Even if they don't, when they get up there, they've got to put up with me forever. Now, I'm joking you a little bit to make the point. We are not here to put on a show and for you to say, my, what great singing, and my, what friendly people, or my, what loud preaching, or all that. We're here as means to an end. And we've not fulfilled our role as worship leaders if you have not genuinely met God. So don't confuse the means with the end. The end is that we leave this service, not so much by saying, my, what a friendly church, my, what beautiful building, my, what great singing, my, what a great God we serve. And if people leave, they will then have had a worship experience that is based on real biblical teachings. Now, beyond that, when Isaiah saw the Lord and had this confrontation, notice the nature of the God he confronted, the God he worked. He said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. His robe filled the whole temple. 
And these angelic beings, this is the only place in the Bible, seraphim are mentioned. These angelic beings began to sing antiphonally, we would say. One would sing, then the other would sing, and the other would sing, and the other would sing. Holy, holy, holy. Hear me. This is the only place in the Bible where any attribute of God is mentioned three consecutive times. Now, where does the Bible say God is love, love, love? God is grace, grace, grace. God is mercy, mercy, mercy. He is all that. Here's the only place in all 66 books. Three different times he's called holy. For that matter, in the whole book of Isaiah, 39 times in the book of Isaiah alone, he's called the Holy One of Israel over and over and over again. You say, Charles, what does that mean? Basically, it means his ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. God is holy. I remember when I was a young teenager growing up right here in Birmingham, I, I used to go to the all-night singings, and some of you may have been there, and I, I was on the front row. The Blackwood Brothers were a popular quartet. You can remember it. I like the Blackwood Brothers, but that a song that they got popular all over America singing. Have you talked to the man upstairs? And they danced all over the platform. Have you talked to the, listen, dear friend, Almighty God is not a man upstairs. He's the Holy One of Israel. And you and I don't get on a buddy-buddy relationship with God and say, He's a man upstairs. No, He's the Lord God Almighty. He is the Holy One of Israel. And we stand in awe when we come into the presence of God. So when you come to worship, remember it's confrontation. It's you as a person meeting God as a person. Now if that happens, inevitably, the second thing is going to take place. I promise you. If I meet God in confrontation, then I inevitably will be convicted of my sin. Conviction is the second dimension of real worship. Isaiah's words were, woe is me. That's his way of saying, I'm a sinner. I, I've done things that are wrong. I've thought things that are wrong. I'm undone, he said. Woe is me. Confrontation with God. Hear me now. Confrontation, meeting God in worship will always lead to conviction by God. You can't worship without becoming convicted. Now, sometimes the way you put it, you go out and say to Brother Mike, well, you really stood on my toes today. He said, get your toes out of the aisle. Or he said something like that. I don't know what he may have said. But you say, you really, you really got to me today, preacher. I understand what we're saying. But the main thing we're saying is, I have been convicted of my sin. Maybe you can remember it in a little paradox that I discovered some time ago. Here it is. The closer you come to God, the farther from God we realize we are. One more time. The closer we come into the presence of God, the farther away from God we realize we are. And the reverse of that is true. The farther away from God I get, the less aware I am of the chasm, the distance between God and me. Now, let me say that one more time. The closer you come to God, the farther away from God you realize you are. You become convicted. His ways are above our ways. And the farther away from God I drift, the less aware I am of the distance between God and me. Now, hear me carefully.
Inevitably, if I come into God's presence and I have confrontation with him and I see him as holy, 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 I am going to be convicted of my sin. That's not a bad thing. That's a good thing. We're not here to put you on a guilt trip and send you to a psychologist. No, no, we're here to say that's the normal, natural expectation. When I come to church, I meet God. That's confrontation. I'm convicted of my sin. That's good, not bad, providing I respond to it in the right way. If I confront God, I become convicted of my sin, then I have a choice. I can do one of two things. You can, right here this morning. We'll all do it. One is, we can cover our sin. Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13 says, Whosoever covereth his sin shall not prosper. But we do it all the time. You know what I'm talking about. Some of us will probably do it this morning. We come to church, we sing the songs, we pray the prayers, we read the scripture, we listen to the sermon, and we leave, and it's so much water on a duck's back. It doesn't make any difference. We still go on doing the very things we know are abominable to God, and yet we went to church. A lot of folks don't even go to church, preacher. I'm here. Get it over with. No, no. Hear me. We sometimes... Just cover our sin. We even encourage people to do this. You ever thought about it? You come to church. Probably what happened to you this morning. You come into church here at Fine Church, First Baptist Church, Pelham, Alabama. You walk up and say, hello, how are you? Everything going all right? Yeah, everything's going all right. Who are you kidding? I ain't ever had a day in my life when everything was all right. You haven't either, you liar. No, no, I'm not... I don't mean to be unkind. I'm just saying we almost encourage people to cover their I don't like the people that always tell you how bad it is. And if it isn't bad today, they tell you how bad it was yesterday. No. But sometime in church, we just cover our sin. We pretend our thoughts, our actions, our attitudes, our dispositions, are all all right when we know in the depths of our heart we're at animosity with God. So, that's one way though. The Bible says whoever covers his sins shall not prosper. Now let me tell you something, dear friend. Covering our sin is both unnecessary and impossible. It's impossible because I can't hide from God. You can't hide from God. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, you remember? God came looking for them and said, where are you? And Adam said, I hid myself. Adam, who are you kidding? You can't hide from God. And Adam couldn't, and you can't. And no one ever has been able to hide from God. Remember the psalmist said, if I go into heaven, you're there. If I dig down to the sea, you're there. And all in between, God is everywhere. I can't hide from God. Where are you going to hide from God? But you know the good news? It's unnecessary. I don't have to hide from God. First of all, I can't. But I don't have to. Why? Hear me now. God doesn't love me any less when I sin or any more when I'm good. God doesn't love me because of my goodness or badness. God loves me because of who God is, and that never does change. 
And he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He loves me just like I am, but too much to leave me like I am. And that's the clutcher. He loves me just like I am, but too much to leave me like I am. And so, I don't need to cover my sin. Instead, the writer of Proverbs says, He that covers his sin shall not prosper, but whosoever confesseth and forsaketh them shall have mercy. That's the promise, dear friend. If you and I will come clean with a holy God, and we in this moment will come to a point of confessing our sin, the word confess in the New Testament of the word homo legao, two words. Homo means the same, lego means to say or speak. When I confess my sin, I say the same thing about my sin God does. Out with it. That's what confession is all about. Now listen to me in parentheses here. Confession is primarily something I do to God, not to you. I want to say to you, I think it's rather unhealthy to go around confessing your sins to other people. I know sometimes people think they're real spiritual. They get in a prayer group or a Bible study, especially if they hold hands and close their eyes, and then somebody begins to confess their sin. And then somebody else says, well, I've got to make them feel good, so I'll confess my sin. That's dangerous, dear friend. Why? Very few people can know everything about you and love you just like you are. Only God can. There's only one verse in the Bible that talks about confessing to one another. It doesn't have to be in the Bible once for me to believe it, but James 5.16 does say that we are to confess our faults one to another. But primarily, I think that means if I've offended you, I need to say to you, I'm sorry. I need to confess it. Get it over with. Don't drag it out forever. Primarily, confession is something we do to God. My sin has been against him, so my confession goes to him. Now quickly, if you will do the confessing, inevitably the next ingredient of worship is going to fall in place. The first confrontation, that leads to conviction. Conviction, I can confess, I can cover, or I can confess. If I do do the confessing, I promise you, God will do his part. That is Cleansing. Isaiah graphically and poetically pictures that one of these angelic beings pictures, we would say, a, a, a piece of live charcoal off this fire and flies over and symbolically lays it upon his mouth, signifying the cleansing, the, the purifying effect of fire. Fire sometimes heats and sometimes warms, sometimes destroys, but sometimes it purifies. And that's what the point is here. He laid that upon his lips and said, Look, iniquity is taken away and your sin purged. What's he saying? Isaiah, you've confessed. You said, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of people of unclean lips. That's confession. Now you're being cleansed. Hear me now. 1 John chapter 1 verse 7 says, the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Son, what? cleanses us from how many? All my sin. The blood of Christ, the only thing that can cleanse me of my sin, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross. 1 John chapter 1 verse 9, two verses later. If we confess our sins, 
He, God, is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Isn't that a wonderful truth? That if I will do the confessing, God will do the cleansing. Our part, confessing. God's part is cleansing. Translated in language we can understand, that means you and I ought to leave every worship hour feeling clean down on the inside. Now, last Sunday, we all confess we take a bath every day. Some of you in the morning, some of you at night, but nevertheless, we get clean. We all leave every worship hour feeling clean on the inside. And the only way we can do that is to confess our sin and God to cleanse us of our sin. I don't mind working outside. I don't mind getting hot and sweaty in the summertime as long as I can take a bath and get clean when it's all over. You know what I'm talking about? I remember several years ago I was preaching over here in Brent, Alabama. It was in August, hot, hot. It was in the days when I didn't have an air-conditioned automobile and I left that little church there in Brent one Sunday night. I had to drive all the way to Indiana to a beginner revival on Monday night in a little country church in Indiana. And I drove and got a little bit of sleep, and I went on and got there about 4 o'clock on Monday afternoon. I met the preacher at the church, and we exchanged greetings. I'd known him for a while. And I said, well, Bob, if you'll just take me to wherever I'm staying, I said, I'll take a bath and get dressed for church tonight. He said, Charles, we're staying, you and I are staying right here in the church. They had a little tea church, you know, how you see these country churches. And one, point, one wing was the intermediates and one was the juniors. He said, I'm staying in the juniors, you're staying in the intermediate department. And sure enough, they had me a little bed in there, a little chest of drawers. And so I went out and got my suitcase, came in, got my shaving kit. I came in, I said, if you just show me where the bathroom is, I'll take a shower, a bath, and clean up. He said, Charles... We don't have a bathroom in this church. I said, really? I've always tried to be positive. I said, well, just take me to one of your church members and I'll bathe there. And then he really shot me out of the saddle. He said, Carter, there's not a member of this church that's got an indoor bathroom. Woo! Well, I went to that little half bath, basement of the church. If you've ever been to a half bath, ain't no tub and ain't no shower in it. Little lavatory. I took a little broken mirror and I took what mama used to call a sponge bath. I got as clean as I could and shaved with cold water right out of the spring. And I dressed in church just like I'm dressed now. Monday night I took off this coat. Tuesday night I preached in short leaves. Thursday night after church was over, I got in my car and started to leave. And he said, Where are you going? I said, I'm going to Louisville, Kentucky. He said, man, that's 100 miles away. I said, don't care. He said, what you going for? I said, to take a bath. <laughs> he laughed and then he said, I think I'll go with you. <laughs> I got into Louisville about midnight, went to a friend's apartment there that I knew. I knew his wife was out of town. At midnight, I woke him up. He came to the door. I said, let me in the bathroom. And I walked in, got in that bathtub. It didn't have a shower but a tub, and I filled it up, and I soaked off Sunday's dirt and Monday's dirt. And then I let that water out, got clean water in, got Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday's dirt off. I mean, I got squeaky clean. As I crawled in the sheets, 
God burned into my mind a thought I hope I will never forget. But before he let me go to sleep, he said, Oh, my dear preacher, what a much better servant of mine you would be if you were just as concerned about your spiritual cleanliness as you are your physical cleanliness. I'd driven 100 miles one way just to take a bath. And I had to acknowledge there were times I had not so much as dropped to my knee and said, Dear God, I've sinned. I've broken your heart. I've violated your word. Please, dear God, forgive me and cleanse me of all my sin. I just had to bow in prayer. Do it. I'd driven a hundred miles to get a physical bath. Sometime I hadn't just dropped to my knees in prayer and said, Lord, cleanse me. Now, what I'm saying in all these little silly stories is this. I ought to leave every worship hour feeling clean on the inside. And when I do, I promise you the ultimate outcome of worship is going to take place. That's when Isaiah faces the question, whom will I send? Who will go for us? Isaiah said, well, Lord, there's Micah. He's a lot better preacher than I am. There's uh, uh, Hosea. Use him. He knows a lot about your love. Or, Lord, what about Haggai? No, no. What did he say? That sounds like us when the nominating committee comes around. Let George do it. No. He said, Lord, here am I. Use, send me. What is this? Consecration to the God we've met in worship. I've been cleansed. I'm ready to be used. And I'm willing to be used. And I say, dear God, here I am. Use me. The ultimate and practical outcome of all dimensions of worship is commitment, consecration to the God we've met. What ought to happen when you come to church? confrontation with God, conviction by God. Rather than cover it, we confess our sins. When we do the confessing, God does the cleansing. And when God does the cleansing, we're ready to be consecrated to Him. Have you really worshiped this morning? Let's bow together for just a minute. With our heads bowed and eyes closed, thank you so much for your presence and for your attention. But now we come to the apex of the service. That is, what am I going to do about it? If you're here and you've never committed your life to Jesus Christ, the same way that you worship is the same way that you come to Christ. You just meet him, you're convicted, and you, other than cover it, you confess. You can do it right here on Sunday morning. You say, Charles, I didn't come planning to make a decision. That's all right, God knows it. God's dealt with your heart maybe and you're ready to say today I want to make Christ Lord of my life. Or you may be a Christian living here in this part of Shelby County and you don't have a church home and you'd like to be a part of a Bible-believing, Christ-loving, people-loving church and First Baptist Pelham is that way. You say, I'd like to be a part of it. You come. The staff will meet you here at the front. Heavenly Father, thank you with all of our heart for your word. Thank you for helping us know what worship is all about. And Lord, if we've really worshiped you this morning, and I pray we have, 
May we now be willing to commit and consecrate ourselves to you in service and obedience. In your name we pray. Amen. Will you stand together with us as we stand? We invite you to make the decision. God lays on your heart. The staff is here to welcome you right now. Thanks for listening to this podcast. For more information about First Baptist Pelham and other free resources like this one, log on to fbcpelham.org.